nice little narrative, but in fact, the narrative is the least important aspect of the film, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, the rest of that that part of the film is way over an hour, hour and twenty minutes, something like that. Yep. But people regard that as the slow part of the film. Well, certainly, yeah, even Hollywood regards it as the slow part. Yeah. But in fact, I find it completely packed. Mm. Um, so I mean, there you're trying to sort of just summarise the narrative. It's a narrative. Say it's, it's not not that important for what the film has become because it's it's culturally it, it's it's a very high watermark, isn't it? And a kind of um, punctuation, perhaps, in the sixties. And at the end of your book, I think it's Marion Faithful you quote who says um, performance puts a glass case over the sixties. Yes, right? I mean that's one of her famous the famous quotes that she's always that's okay. always used mm. that, that's coming from her. And how, I mean that that's do you feel that's very true in many respects because what we yes yeah for a number of reasons it's yeah. not just the it's a countercultural one mm. uh, but but even then it's still not an easy play on saying it's countercultural because most of the people involved in the film are involved in the King's Road. And, and also, and, it's a, and also, and it's a Hollywood film. It's a Hollywood production, which is a. I mean, although that didn't have too much impact directly on much. the production, Hollywood in the end had control of it, and they didn't even want to release it, did they? Because yeah. they just couldn't understand. But for that, <laughs> I think at the same time we didn't really have to. Don't worry too much about Hollywood at the moment. No, what is interesting is the counterculture in this country. Yeah. And the, the fact that it's supposedly filmed in Powell Square which is just the facade because that's the door and you can see that it's in he's wandering along in Powell Square mm -hmm. and we all know that that's the 60s you know the hippie kind of thing around there um, that is the kind of the, the heart one of the throbbing places for counterculture right that's what we um, we imagined but in reality of course it was filmed elsewhere the inside of the house it was another building altogether but all the people involved in the film they're basically all based around the King's Road. I do actually make that quite clear in the book. Mm. I do keep saying King's Road, King's yeah. Road, these mm -hmm. people live in Chelsea, you know. And even even though I'm talking about, I use the theatre references, which I think is very important to set what was happening in the theatre, uh, an underground theatre as well. And the Royal Court has an instrumental part at that time. And the Royal Court was uh, And that was King's at the other Road, one end that, of the yeah, King's that Road, that was at Sloan Square. Square. Then at the other end of the King's Road, you've got Granny Takes a Trip and, you know, Nigel Weymouth and these people, uh, they're there. But all the other people involved, whether it be like, like the Pheasantry was a place where Martin Sharp lived in the King's Road and also Eric Clapton lived in there, Jermaine Greer lived in there, Litvinoff was kind of involved there, Litvinoff is kind of often credited as one of the main kind of sources there. He's not a counterculture person, yeah. but he's someone that cuts across that that gay world, the gangster world and in and I, I think what, what, you're, what you're bringing in here that may, bear in mind, because it's for radio and with resonance, that I think you and I, we have a familiarity with this subject. Well, the notion of the counterculture um, is the swinging 60s and something really big happening, but the reality is it was actually very, very much smaller. It was also a very privileged class. And you have to think of Notting Hill Gate now. People, you mention Notting Hill Gate, and you think about trust affairs things. It was an extraordinarily poor well, it was a area. Hip, it was a hippie area. Yeah, hippie. I mean, I had to live just around the corner from Power yeah. Square at the time. It was a hippie area, mm -hmm. and and I suppose 
I, I don't really thought of it, but I wonder whether the first kind of shops that were selling, you know, beans and yogurt and brown rice and things I'm, like I'm, that I'm, must I'm, have been in there. Because after, you also have to think that Michael Moorcock and a Friends magazine. Yeah, um, Craig Sam started series there. That was in All Saints Road. They're, yes, I was they're the all manager. There. I was actually the manager of oh, series right. in 1978. About 78, but yeah, but we're going back ten years. Going back, of course, of course, and I mean, very much uh, at that time too. But so, but the, still, there was that there. Whereas the swinging London mm. was very much King's Road. Mary Quant, don't forget, was yeah. in the there and Twiggy and all these people. And Knightsbridge as well, of course. Which but, is, but still, this King's Road yeah. and Donald when he stayed in London was living just off the King's Road. David Camel, uh, his brother, lived there, and they had a studio there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mick Jagger didn't live very far away in Shane Walk. Um, James Fox didn't live far away. Anita was in that area. You know, yeah. they're, they're all in that area, all these mm -hmm. people. And Christopher Gibbs, you know, all these people are, are living around there. And it is an aspect of the counterculture, but it is another aspect. It is the, the rich bohos, as we would say, yeah. you know, the, the wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other people would be in Notting Hill Gate and then scattered around a bit in the north. So the people that were involved with International Times, Indica, John Dunbar, Barry Miles and these people, mm -hmm. who we'd have to say are the counterculture, John Hopkins sure. and that. And, uh, and so not only Indica, but then UFO, which started and things mm -hmm. like that. They're not part of that they're not part of that King's Road thing, but they are the counterculture, a different type of counterculture. Yeah. So there are some that go across it, but some who are not part of it. Of course they do know these people, so, so some of the connections would have to be people like some of the rock people, you know, such as Jagger, such as Paul McCartney, who would know all these various people, mm. but who would keep more to one area than another. Jagger had a tendency to be more, let's say, with the King's Road people, mm -hmm. although he did know Miles and, you know, he got his books from Miles and that, whereas Paul McCartney had a tendency to be much more connected with Miles and these other people and, uh, and listening to what they had to say in International Times than spending his time in Chelsea. He didn't really do that. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, that counterculture world is not just one world, there's two worlds. And there's yes. the rich people and there's the poor hippies. But at the same time, poor hippies, a lot of, us, a lot of the people there came from middle class backgrounds mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not necessarily went to university or educated. That was, that was nothing to, it was nothing to do with it. It's not the same type of thing at all at that period, I didn't no. think. In fact, we can even come to that. I would actually say that virtually all the people working on performance didn't have any formal education, which is also part of the point. But perhaps we can come back to, th okay, cause, to that. Okay, because I mean, in, in the, other, the other side, I think of Pink Floyd as being with UFO, very much involved with UFO, and they're all very much university educated and very well to do families, extremely well spoken. If we, well, if you see footage from the time, extremely well spoken. But I have a feeling that. And I'm not the only one, I think Barry Miles says it somewhere on film, that they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. They just happen to find that uh, UFO picked up on them, these people picked up, them, or they actually started in that hall in, uh, in Notting Hill Gate, didn't they? In, in All Saints. Wow. The Tabernacle. No, no, it's Tabernacle. No, was it, what was it called then? I don't remember. Well, they actually played in the hall in 
in Notting Hill Gate. I'm trying to think where that would be because you've got, you've got the tabernacle where people just used to pray. They've disappeared from my head now. The hall can't remember either. No. But but the fact is they started, then they were picked up by you for But they yeah. became the, the kind of symbol for the underground, and yet they were extremely well spoken. Yeah. Um, and that was quite ironic, really. And the psychedelia coming from the Boyle well, family as well, with the um, Technicolor light yeah. shows and things. So you had the art world once again. You the art world is very much involved in that, and yeah. whether it be... Uh, but, see, once again, there again, and I make this very clear in the book, you start to look at the art world of the... The art references that are in the film, they're coming off Robert Fraser. Mm. Robert Fraser was part of their set. Mm -hmm. And so you have to say... So who did Robert Fraser have in his gallery? Robert Fraser had Richard Hamilton. Robert Fraser had Klaus Aldenberg. Mm -hmm. Robert, Robert Fraser also was dealing in Magritte. Yeah, I was surprised. I read in towards the end of the book when you talk about the yeah. painting that came he was, uh, And what's ironic, he actually offered Jagger yeah. Magritte. And Jagger said, I can't afford them. Mm. Which of course, zoops, that's in the film. Um, <laughs> but the point was, Jagger couldn't afford because of the the tax situation they were in. That they were just losing their money. Super tax at the yeah, time. Well, wasn't that, it? that whatever was happening in. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm not going to go into everything to do with the Rolling Stones because it doesn't totally interest me in one sense. Exactly. No, it's, and it, it doesn't <laughs> so, really relate to performance. So much, no. Um, so. But they had tax problems to the degree that he didn't actually have floating money just to be able to buy things like that. Yep. So, whereas Paul McCartney, and it wasn't that Robert Fraser had them in his gallery, the Magritte's, he actually would go to Paris and to get them from his friend who was dealing in Magritte's, and they weren't that expensive, but, you know, McCartney bought a number. And so, but that's part of the referencing of where the Magritte's coming from. The old, Klaus Oldenburg, I, would, I reference in there because I say the bedspread is very much like a red mushroom top uh -huh. and it's like so it's like a soft sculpture soft piece sculpture that he was doing of, at the time yeah. which he was doing at the time and this is i'm just picking off bits and pieces and here and there to show you but that you could go through very carefully all the exhibitions and you'll probably take out even more the fact is that richard hamilton when you look at uh, the 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 room of Chaz of his flat it looks very much like Richard Hamilton, some of his paintings at the time, some of the interiors, it's got the same feel, it's got the same colours. Nothing is an exact copy. Mm. And they're not even tending to be pastiches, but there's, they are in the mode of, in the ambience of, you think of it, you can see that there's an echo coming through. And I use the word echo because I think the film is about echoes. You use... The, 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 I'm jumping around here all the time. It does use echoes do, because yeah. we see... Uh, one of the great kind of reference, countercultural references in the film, which is Borges, and you see the cover of the book, The Personal Anthology, and it's a picture on the front of uh, the uh, portrait ahead of Borges, but then you see echoes of him going back, and I think it's put on purpose because there were other Borges books around, and there were, and I think The South must have been in another book as well, but um, <laughs> the story that's used there. But the fact is, it's a great one to use because the film uses echoes all the way through. Sure. The dialogue that's used in the first part echoes in the second part. They they refer to it again. They use it again mm -hmm. in different ways. Lots and lots of things echo without just kind of trying to suddenly pick my brain and say this is an echo. This is an echo. No, 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 of but it not. does happen it's, like that. Yeah. So uh, the art references are there all the time, and I reference the Boyle family once again, not because of the light shows. 
but because of the way they play with textures, because they were they were doing their uh, concentration on on squares of the world. You know, That's they right. focus they, on they and making textural pieces through um, darts and pins at the map. Which of the they world. threw a map and then they came. They did yeah. an exact representation of and did it as a family. Which is quite interesting. It. That's, That's it started off. Beautiful. It was done as a family, but you have to realise in the sixties, late sixties. The children were very young, so yeah. it was just the two of them, really. Of course, yeah. And uh, and Joan, Mark and Joan. But Mark, in those days, it was often given the credit, you know, it was Mark. But in fact, it was Mark and Joan, and gradually the children came in, mm -hmm. and, you know, and the children are very much, and it's a very much a family thing now, sure. although Mark has died, but they carry on. Mm. And, you know, and I saw them six months ago mm. <laughs> I saw them I saw them at the Serpentine Gallery when Yoko was doing a thing there and we talked yeah, it was great yeah I, you know well they did I, I met Joan because I know Sebastian had done some stuff with one of the magazines he was produced yep. a few years ago and they had the recreation of the light shows at the at the ICA there was a special night of oil light and and all of the hippie glass stuff at the ICA about five years ago, and it was a recreation of one of the happenings from the 60s, the Boyle family happenings, and yes. Joan did a talk, and it was, it, it was beautiful, it was very interesting. Well, I worked at UFO, mm. and I helped Jack Henry Moore do the sound. He was in charge of the sound, so I was helping him, and so I was underneath on the scaffolding, and above my head, there's Mark and Joe projecting over the soft machine, the Pink Floyd, and whoever was playing. And so every now and then you get crash as the as the whole thing would kind of splinter with yes. the glass frame. Yeah, yeah the it, was, it was not high tech. Uh, well, it, it, it it was, start, the whole thing started it. off with them putting ice in slides, I think, and removing the heat, um, the thing that deflects the heat, so they'd actually melt frames, and it actually grew from that. But then you could reference it out to someone else that you mentioned uh, in the book, is Metzger, with the auto-destructive auto -destructive art. And the he gets all the credit for that, and I actually kind of did that once again. I could have sidetracked and said there were other people involved in doing the auto destruct, like the John Sharkey, and John Sharkey went to court for it. And you know, there was a number of people involved in that because of bringing over the actionists from uh, Vienna, you know, the Hermann Nietzsche and, and, and these people, Otto Mule yeah. uh, and things like that. And once again, and I will have to put this in, is that. Otto Mule's work was filmed by Kurt Crane, and Kurt Crane did these phenomenal kind of cut-ups, uh, his films, which are the, which are happenings in themselves, in a sense, actions in themselves. And I am saying that uh, they have an influence on this film as well, because these are part of what Donald, Nick, everyone involved in this film would see, and. They don't just go, say, specifically seeing like we might do now. They're just there, they're an ambience of the 60s. If you're involved in the 60s, you're just going in and out of better books, Indica, UFO. You might not stay all night, you might just go through. You'd know the people show there. You would know, you would have read International Times or flipped through International Times. You would know because the world was very small at that time. So you didn't have to see everything or know everything. You just knew what was going on. Sure. People would talk. Now, so if we come down to Christopher Gibson, his friends and Tara Brown, all these people, they didn't have to earn a living in any major way. But So they would be here, there and everywhere. And they would be picking up on information, talking to each other, just laying around in the evening, drinking fine wine or smoking whatever, taking various drugs 
and they would just be talking about it. And someone like Jagger was very interested in picking up on everything. He was absorbing, absorbing, and he made no you know, bones about it. He was mm. said he was out to learn things. So he would just order books from Miles, read them, and you know, and talk to them about them, and ask everyone. That was great, because at that time, people were interested in learning and knowing things just for the sake of it because they wanted to enrich their lives yes. not for career ah, not education education no, education because exactly. you're going to get a job you're not you're going to go to university and what you're going to do at university you're going to do that so you can get this job nothing exactly. to do with that no. no one was interested in that and lots of people didn't go to university i went and walked out of uh, chelsea so i was going to do a chemistry and geology degree chemistry and geology uh, okay. and geology and yeah, concepts why, why of starters and you start somewhere and and fault lines. Yeah. <laughs> I think fault lines is even appearing in what I'm saying now, as it is in my writing. Yeah. I run down fault lines. Yeah. I run precipices. Yeah. You know, I use that kind. Of, sometimes, actually, very physically say it, particularly in my poetry. In that, I very physically say these aspects of geological terms and concepts that I'm playing with. But I would actually apply that also here, although in another sense, the real word for talking about performance is the word mosaic. Like you see, the, the glittering on the table yeah. in the lights, or labyrinth, which is to play with Borges as well, Borgian terminology. Mm -hmm. They're all part of it. This kind of weave, or a weave of a of a rug, like you see the Persian rug yeah. on their magic carpet. You know, that's all kind of part of this kind of complex thing that became performance, but not intended to be complex. And all of them. So what I would say is that. All the people, although Donald is trained to be a painter, had a formal education to be a painter, he then broke that by going to America and stopped painting portraits and went into an abstract expressionist period mm -hmm. and he had an exhibition which was very influenced by Tapia as it would appear, but then he went to Paris and in Paris which was because of Deborah Dixon who went to Paris. He didn't go to Deborah Dixon being his girlfriend at the time and okay. she was a model and she picked up very quickly in Paris to become a very top line model and she went there because work she was being flown from New York to Europe to work. And so therefore by working by basing themselves in Paris, she could then kind of work around Europe and pick up and she was, you know, a major kind of T tell you what, some threads you're opening up there that really really opening up for me is that was one of the things I wanted to talk about was glamour. And when we think of the 60s and underlying this and driving this, you've also got Anita Pallenberg as being one of the writers of the script and hugely influential as the character Ferber and a driving force of both the Rolling Stones and in, in, uh, she was the educated one, educating Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and this and so was Marianne. And so was Marianne as well. I'm well, certainly, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that's just, another just, role as well. I'm talking about the female point. Yeah, it's the notion of glamour. So within the 60s, of course, you had a much more stratified, um, it, was, it was male oriented, women were treated very badly, but at the same time, we see these figures. So you've got well, these sex models, objects, sex okay. objects, of course. But they weren't treated as sex objects. They are sex objects, and the way we look back now as sex ob objects, but in fact they weren't regarded as sex objects in the kind of way that we regard sex objects no. now. They were obviously very glamorous and that, but then that was part of this terrifying idea of what women were supposed to be yeah, at, at, and, the time. Uh, at the time. And so, yes, Donald had very glamorous mm. women, and this is very much part of it. Yeah. Right. 
And Anita, once again, she was modelling. That's where mm -hmm. she came in, although she had this art background. And yeah. therefore, that's why she knew Robert Fraser, because she'd gone from Italy with her uh, her art world boyfriend, yeah. uh, Shifano, who was ostensibly a photographer, but he's in fact a painter. So that's why she knew all those people in, in New York yeah. and why she knew eventually Robert Fraser. So when she came to London, she had that connection with Robert Fraser. So she was part of that kind of glamorous world mm -hmm. there. But all of these people like to have glamorous women. Well, I think Marion Faithful says in her books that she liked Paul McCartney. <laughs> because he was the only one that didn't seem to have a model on his arm and the others always had models and they, why were they spending their time with models? She was trying to say that models weren't necessarily bright which is not true at all. Uh, in fact, Deborah Dixon went to Vassar. She was one of the only other people who had a formal education coming from a background in Texas, going to New York and then going to Paris, being a model for so many years but then moving out of that world. But who are the people they meet in Paris? That's interesting, and Anita as well. They're moving in a world of the models, but also the rich bohos of Paris, mm. what we call the dandies. Because mm -hmm. in a sense, we don't use that term so much now, but no. Christopher Gibbs that were dandies. And in fact, if you read books about the period, they use the word dandy quite a lot. You can see how dandy morphs towards hippie with the, the clothing, the flow. Exactly, exactly. that overlaps. Yeah. But dandy in the, very, in the very wealthy sense as well. Yes. And it's the same in Paris. It was the Daniel Pomerel and people like this who were, were dandies, but they were, they were artists. And mm. they also formed this group around who started making films together which has Philip Gorell and people like that in mm. and once again who are the, the the people who are working Nico Nico was a, a model she was a glamorous glamour it was all that glamour 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 played a very big part yeah. in it in it's, it, it's it's I'm seeing these but, these very strong undercurrents driving things and you've got glamour as this very driving force but at the same time you mustn't put glamour down as if Certainly uh, that, not. That, that no, kind no, 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 because we have a different <coughs> view of it Because now. our different view of glamour now, that's, yeah. uh, and our models are not necessarily particularly educated. Yeah. Here or, it was very exciting, very international, and and for for people like Mick Jagger and English, it's a fairly provincial thing. Think of the Beatles has been fairly provincial. These international women coming along with huge influence. The Beatles were very much working class people, yeah. and, and, and the Rolling Stones were very much middle class. Sure. But of course, the way that the, the cookie crumbled, the way Brian Epstein had set them up, the Beatles up, and then the way that Oldham had to respond to make that kind of yeah. tension and yeah, frisson yeah, yeah. between them, gave, gave the Rolling Stones as if they were working class, which is why a Jagger, I suppose, took on the kind of mock Cockney mm -hmm. accent and the rest of it. But having said that, I think Keith Richards really, he came from much more... I, I come from Sidcup, that's where I was born, and I'm living there again. So just down the road from me, we've got Crayford, and then just around there a bit further is Dartford, where Mick comes from. Yeah. But Keith comes from Crayford, and I know where he comes from. They were kind of council house area and things like that. It's a very working, working class background. And when the Americans write about Keith, or the Rolling Stones when we talk about Keith, they don't really understand South London, South East London like that. So they really don't understand the real environments, you know, they talk about Keith's background, where he came from, but they really don't actually know. And mm. even if you go there now, you're not really going to understand totally. You have to have been there from the 50s. So Keith can say things, but he can also glamorise things to a degree. Mm. Jack is very middle class. And 
I've got the yeah the morals of a middle class person, and it comes across like that in the film. It comes across in the way he is behind the film, and I actually express that in the book because sure, I think it's there, yeah. and that's which not to put it down. I just think actually it's another stabilizing force. Whereas the others, because they are very middle class, um, they can then feel, find that they can break the rules very easily the Christopher Gibbs and Donald Camels and all the rest of them that's they can actually go against the rules and play in a different way for Jagger it's very difficult to come home and find your girlfriend in bed with another woman mm. I think it's a shock to his system I might, want, I might want to admit it I have a feeling you just get you sense these there things is between the lines oh very very much so but uh, that is probably a good in, in terms of this film that was probably a good point yeah because then you you have him working against James Fox, who is very much uh, an upper class person, <coughs> who showed himself very clearly in The Servant, which is his other good film of the period. And there he is then play, taking on the role of playing a gangster based on Jimmy Evans, who's mm -hmm. a, a, an independent gangster. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and obviously learning certain mannerisms from him and from other people as well I mean, you know, and making this role and then suddenly Jagger's coming up against that and playing off that uh, and, and I think it put Jagger on his back feet, you know, back on his back feet to kind of think about how to work with this and this is why my contention is that what really went on, everyone else runs down, is what happens backstage in the dressing room, and which gets quoted as there was a terrible tension going on, they were fighting each other, mm -hmm. and kind of really taking the piss out of James Fox, and really kind of playing games with him, actually was a very constructive way to make the film work. Um, because that they they played that tension, they played that kind of against each other mm. to make it then come out on the set where he was getting very irritated, James Fox. But it, it's always written up as if this was a negative thing. Mm. No, it worked. And, it worked but it was actually a, yeah. a, a very positive. Mm -hmm. And I am s suggesting, and I'm still thinking, that Jagger was actually quite clever and was actually it wasn't an accident and him just going along with it. He actually perceived that. Now, I use, I use as my quote to try and show you an idea about it, Peter Hall talking about how to direct Harold Pinter. Um, I use that as one of, the, as one of my ideas in, in the book to kind of show the idea, but one could run with it even further. And Jagger himself could probably say, oh, thank goodness, someone's actually said something. But I also picked up this from talking to other people who are on set who haven't really been talked to before, and... They were telling me some of the various things that were going on. And I just put two and two together and I started to piece various things to go together to know how this really worked. Um, because most of the people around, obviously, who've spoken it out so many times, whether it be Mick Jagger, whether it be Nick Rogue, who obviously spoke about it a lot more at the beginning and then realised the film was being given to him as a credit mm. and therefore it was causing real problems, that... Uh, that in fact obviously then Donald was being sidelined then it kind of swings back to Donald and so but of course the whole film is a mesh and this is what I would like to say is that everyone on the set everyone involved in it is educated in their own way not formally mm. and all of them have so we used to say in the 60s you've read all the right books but in the wrong way wrong order <laughs> Because you didn't go to, you know, when you go to university, they tell us to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we've, but that means you've got, you're shot full of holes. 
So what we've got then is everybody coming with their bit of knowledge, which is kind of dangerous to have bits of knowledge, but that but they all kind of slotted together. And they kind of the holes kind of filled in like that in some respects. Or they didn't fill in. So therefore there are errors and there are accidents and there are mistakes. But instead of scrubbing them all, they worked with them and they play with them. Mm. So where you might see something which you might say, oops, there's a continuity. No one smokes a cigarette that goes up and down, up and down, up and down. But there are other things that shift around. You might say, look, there's a, rubber, there's a little yellow rubber duck that seems to move within the same scene from one side of the bath to the other side of the bath. Obviously it's shot the next day or something and someone had tampered with things. And you could say it's a continuity thing. But on the other hand, there are so many things that have purposely been shifted around, like the big, the white polar bear that moves from being on the side at one point mm. to into the bedroom to onto the floor. It shifts around on purpose. On purpose, yeah. So therefore, this is a shifting of, of things spatially, but there's many things that shift in the time sense as well. We talked about and that's people done. stealing from the set and Nita running off with bits and pieces. Yeah, is, yeah. It, it, it's great. It's a great notion that it's, well, you know, they can imagine them smoking all this dope backstage going, that's nice. But a lot of these things came from private collections. Sure. I mean, Deborah brought things from Paris which had not been said before. No one had ever said that before. Deborah being Donald's De girlfriend. Donald's girlfriend. Yeah. Donald wanted to create the ambience of their home environment, mm. of where he, you know, they lived together for you know, through the through the the sixties. Well, it was very intimate. There was a lot. Uh, everyone bought <coughs> personal things into so it. So she was the, bringing the personal de things. The decor, which was Gibbs, you see. It's it was Gibbs, but so therefore Deborah, because she was actually part of the the decor rather yeah. than the costumes. Of so such. you've got this very for, so she, for people that haven't seen it. This very very rich hippie Moroccan Eastern fabrics, carpets, rugs, very very mirrors, rich, everything. mirrors, beautiful, very Plates. red, very very red, very very dark. Yeah. And and as, as you said, you can you can smell the incense even. Oh, it's yes. not filled with we that. smell it, lots of things in yeah. the film. But so she brought lots of these things from Paris to cr help create the ambience. Uh -huh. So if some of those things were either broken or well, no one said they were broken, but if they were stolen, that's not very. She wouldn't be very pleased about that. I yeah. would have thought. Uh, so you weren't expected to do that. But we all know in the sixties that people were <laughs> pilfering. And each is always talking about pilfering. She's talking about clothes as well that you, you take from different people and things like that. Yeah, right. You mentioned the Getty's clothes with Talitha oh, Getty. Yeah. <laughs> Talitha Getty's clothes turning up every club they went into. There'd be men dancing in her flat. Uh, there would be men from the yes. Living Theatre who were staying in uh, Robert Fraser's flat, which Paul Getty had um, sublet. Strangely, I'll, I'll actually tell you that story later, but I met a woman in Paris at some openings through Martin, uh, maybe not Martin Stone, but part of uh, that general crowd who claimed to be Talitha Getty. And she actually said, you know, I didn't really die in the sixties. And she was very, very compelling. It's a great story. But that's another one. We'll deal, deal with that one another Well then, day. you know. <laughs> well, that seems to fit in okay with the film anyway, because yeah. did anyone die well, in the film? Actually, did no one die in the film? No one does, but I actually had a picture. <laughs> it's a film about death, it's a film about transcendence. <laughs> but in, in any direction, so you mix it around. But with, with her in particular, I took a picture of her in a gallery and I took it to James Fox, who knew to leave the Getty, James Fox. You're the, talking about another James Fox, not, uh, not, not this James Fox, of course. James Fox, the writer who did. Uh, uh, White Mischief and the Keith Richard book recently. Yeah, yeah. And he knew Talitha and he said, no matter how much remodeling and cosmetic surgery, this could not be Talitha Getty. But anyway, that's a detour too far. It's, um, 
Well, no details too far when you're talking about performance. No, because not. what it is is a mix of all these things that people brought to it, and you can run. With, I mean, I I only had 300 pages. Mm. I could have easily have done 500 pages. I can see that in the but book. it would be yeah. it would be quite heavy going for anyone who mm -hmm. was just starting the film. Yeah. Um, so you've left it so that you can run with things if you want to. And I have left. I purposely done that because, but I just wanted people to understand that. <coughs> There's a lot there that meshes together and that you can go further than 40 years of articles and the two books that have been written have uh -huh. shown. I mean, they might mention Borges or they might mention Artaud or they might mention Genet or they might briefly mention Cocteau, but no one actually says anything more. And my, people might say underground movies and they run with Kenneth Anger because of the Alistair Crowley thing and things like yeah, that. There's but, so but, much background. But there. you see, the point is that that's an easy way to say with Kenneth Anger because Kenneth was also in London trying to draw them into his world. Mm. Uh, whereas I think that cinema, underground cinema, if you were to go to UFO or any of these places, you would see films being projected on the wall while a band was playing. Yeah. And so therefore the films that you might see, which were the illegal films you weren't supposed to see, was like Flaming Creatures. As far as Suddenly, there it was Flaming on the wall. Creatures, who's that? That's, That's Jack Smith's film. Okay, and that, that was banned at the time uh -huh. because you get shots of a. Uh, <laughs> it's, a gay, it's a gay drag film, but you suddenly see a penis coming over someone's shoulder, or you get this kind of mock rape scene. You get this girl being molested, and but you can't really always tell the gender of who's who in this whole thing. Uh -huh. but you always have there's a whole sequence with lipstick being put on, and I purposely reference that because I wanted to kind of play that against Jagger having his lipstick Jagger, yeah, put Jagger's on, very much and so I even put a still a still in the book to show that it's not because I'm saying it's, it, that they specifically copied it or whatever yeah. I'm just to say that you really have to start going into the underground movies of the time and looking at them that they all saw them they saw them in London they saw them in New York they saw them in Paris these were people that were moving around all the time they go to clubs and all these clubs were just projecting these films yeah uh, without soundtrack I take, um, another point um, the word authenticity how performance stands up as the, through the test of time as a very authentic document of the 60s and comparing it to Blow Up, for instance, which is a film in many ways that would have set out to be that film of the 60s. And I think you mention that in the book, that the research, and especially with James Fox, how he embedded himself with the South London people, going mm. to the Thomas A. Beckett, working out and actually boxing with these people, and he came in, that it, and then the word groovy isn't used, that you've got, that, that allows the film to continue, that, um, there's a greater authenticity compared to other films of the 60s. Yes, what I find is interesting because it appears to have that sense of realism of the 60s. Yeah. But it's not a realistic film at all. Of course not. I mean, it's very, very careful. So therefore, by, if you, but if you try to have that sense of realism, I mean, Blow Up is not a realistic film, but no. you have that sense of, of that narrative structure and the that you feel that it's going along and therefore it has a sense of realism about it. Mm. And many other films we've the same. But this has no sense of realism about it. The time is opening up inside the house all the time. And you don't even realise it's opening up all the time. You don't perceive it. So some people who might say, oh, the, the, the film in the house is much too long and should be just shortened, it's because they haven't... 
taken a deep breath and just sunk into their armchair yeah. and just relaxed with the film and let it flow with them. If she's not just meaning it's a drug experience, it's not to do with that necessarily because the filming of the drugs in that is not done in that kind of awful... Outdated kind of way. He just kind of by showing the mosaic of the the shimmering of the light and that. That's it. It's much more powerful. It's much more powerful. And and Rhodes said very specifically he did that. Whereas if you see Duffy, Mm. there's a scene inside uh, a club where everyone where he's supposed to be taking drugs and that, and the cameras go woo 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 going all over the place and things like that. You get more like what a cliche type of situation. This doesn't have those cliches. And what makes it very interesting is that, and what if you really start watching the film again and again is that time and space are expanding and contracting. Time and space are expanding and contracting, and that throws you, and you don't even perceive that it's going faster or slower. And therefore, there's no sense of realism. It is almost like, and this is why I will use Harold Pinter as one of the kind of uh, diction kind of references. Harold Pinter doesn't date in one sense because of the way he uses language. It appeared to us at the time to be kind of realistic. The same as Edward Bond appeared to be realistic, but Mm. it's not. It's completely stylized. Sure. Well, if you try to put realistic dialogue... It, that would have kind of dated it. That would have out, out, outdated it. Uh, but it's much more than that. And that is the trick. And it's it's all an illusion. And this whole film is an illusion. That is what makes it work. And it's incredible that it makes it work. Nick Rogue's films after that are not the same as performance. Not at all. They have aspects of... I purposely didn't really want to relate to... I mean, I used to, I talked to a couple of shots later because people like to say, well, if you start talking about Nick Rogue's films afterwards, therefore, it all comes from performance. And I say, well, no, let's look at what Nick Rogue was shooting before. before you yeah. can see all the little traits are there. You know, there's lots and lots of things it's which you see. Man Who Fell to Earth, for instance, I watched that recently in reference to this, because sort of reading the book and thinking about Rogue's mm-hmm. work, and I was horrified by how it had dated since I last watched it, which couldn't have been that long ago. But it, it doesn't stand up, whereas performance is a timeless film, even though it's very much of its time. Yeah, about it's the time. timeless. Of it's timeless. But see, then, therefore, you st- if you start to then say, let, let's say, Borges or someone like that... Yeah. People say, oh, that's a very 60s writer and things like that. But what he's talking about and what he's about is, you know, it's a timeless thing as well. And the whole thing to do with time, which we say coming out of Borges. Don't forget Borges wrote about done, you know, and now suddenly the the, the title of the the book that he wrote has gone from my head. But, you know, that Dunn's book, which Nick Rogue was also very interested in way before that, and Borges has written on that book as well. That whole sense of the interest of what you can do with time and the interest in time was always there with Nick Rogue and he had experienced it a long while before, last year in Maribel in particular. So these things are there in his work. These things are there in the work Mm -hmm. altogether. So... But they had six editors on the film. Tony Palmer's not... I mean, I've credited about 20 people in the book who have been uncredited, whether it be actors or whether it be other people in the film. Other people had parts in the film. Lots of people worked on the film. <clears throat> Lots of things were done on the soundtrack that people don't really realise even now, that the way that, that, that uh, 
Ian memo Mc... from Turner it was not what people thought yeah. it was. Ian it was McShane. completely stripped, of, uh, stripped and done later on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a joke. Isn't I mean, it? that's Still a lovely sa- joke. But to know that Noel, that character, is such a kind of Black important character. character. Yeah, it was actually Ian McShane. What's it, what's more important than Noel in, in one sense, although we kind of can play jokes with Noel yeah. and that whole thing, is that the Hendrix, the, is the Hendrix thing and all the rest of it. Uh, is that his mother's there and that his mother's seeing him off and at the same time James Fox this is a pivot point of the film James Fox is speaking to his mother on the phone and she said now you know be a good boy you know this type of thing her, her son is a gangster and yet you know and it's exactly the same as the craze the craze one yeah she always turned the boys were always well turned out well turned out and they were just kind of oh they might have got to a bit of mischief you know but nothing really bad and all the rest so it's much the same there and this whole Irish this Irish kind of mother's insane comes out and see your auntie in Barnstable and all this type of thing but it's the two women there these, these pivots once again there's the, the mother yeah. figure there and if you were to go through the film and see the, what the role that women play in the film, the role that women play outside the film, whether it be Marion Faith, whether it be Anita Palmer, whether it be Deborah Dixon or others, they have a very strong part in this film, which of course is also unusual for that period. Mm. Uh, and so I like to see it from that point of view. And also, as well. it, was very, it was very looking forward in many respects, because that's another thing with performance that you can see it as the punctuation of the 60s, the peace and love and everything ending with such violence because performances are very very far it's it's a film about violence as, as you say in the book um, but nowhere does anyone ever say at any point in the film peace and love no or anything like it's, that does anyone well, ever talk about it's, peace it's, it's, does anyone it's, talk about peace no, i'm trying not. to think now i can't no, think of it's no. not concept you, you at have all. that sense of you've got you're going from the violence and the aggression of the protection money, the betting shop, the breaking up, the fights with Chaz, to that house where it is peace and love. It's incense, but is it peace and love? It's, it's not, not peace and love, it's violence. violence. It's, violence. it's a different yeah. type of violence. But the violence is under the surface. And even Anita says, even yeah. Anita says, she, when, she goes to, when she goes to shoot, she puts the gun over her, the, the camera over her arm yeah, to film them in the bed. Mm. She's shooting film. So and she actually plays with the concept of, uh, of, of, the, of the violence of it. Violence is very much part of it. Which predated, the film predated, but then you had Altamont, which became, which is kind of the official punctuation of the end of the 60s, yeah. isn't it? But um, performance had already kind of gone through and analysed Altamont, which was a year before it happened, two years? Uh, yeah, 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 something yeah, like that. Something like that actually, the actual filming of it, do you mean? Yeah, the, the actual, actual filming. Yeah, the, the I mean, the release and everything was later. But. Yes, there's that underlying mood, but then you see, if you lived in 60s, if you lived in London, sorry, if you lived in London in the 60s, the late 60s like that, you have to know that most of us ran away from London. Yeah. The, the rock stars were out first because they had the money. Yeah. And then some of the painters had the money, so they moved out. Mm. People like myself, who were writers, poets, <laughs> we couldn't afford to. You asked Michael Horowitz, who lived <laughs> in, the, in, you know, in that area for a long, long while, but he then went out as well. We moved out because it was turning nasty. Yes. And, but the film had seen that. The film had picked up on that yeah. way in advance uh, and could see that the violence underneath it wasn't peace and love at all. No. And in Notting Hill, it was uh, not too many years before you'd had the race riots. 
that went on. And so Notting Hill Gate was a very violent place in many respects. But, it, but even in the so-called hippie community, yeah. it was extremely violent and the undercurrent there. Well, with the drugs and money and drugs, it always that's 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 what happened. Well, well, see, I don't really even want to kind of equate it out into the you know Michael X and the, all all the rest of it that's around there. I just even within the hippie thing, it was just it was like a bad karma. Yeah. Bad come, and you knew you weren't going to stay around long. Mm. So we all. Moved. In fact, the funny thing is that I was living in Stanley Gardens, and I hadn't been around that way for ages. And I walked back there not so long ago, and I realised that right next door to where is the Portobello Hotel now. So that whole thing has become something else. That whole area has become yeah, something yeah, a very yeah. wealthy area. And I was living exact next door. So mm-hmm. if I banged on my wall, if I drilled through my wall now, I would have gone into the Portobello Hotel. Mm. <laughs> I find it very funny. I remember at the at the other end, uh, the Goldbourne Road end, that was all bomb sites then. And in another big 60s film, uh, what was it? Peter Cotton Dudley Lund? Moore. The Peter Cotton Dudley Moore one. Oh, the wrong. The one where the devil, he's, Peter Cook plays the devil. I don't know. We know, oh, it's, it, you, you know it somewhere. It's, it's not, really bad. I probably know, but it's not that you've the wrong box or something. No, like no, that. no, not the wrong box. But in that, the devil's office is actually where Meanwhile Gardens is now. So near yeah, the Tranic right. Tower in that area there, which was all bomb sites. I remember going there for my photographing with my brother in sort of 68 and 67. Like it was really frightening. I was out at the end of the 60s. And uh, I see where so when when I was coming to to in theory write a book, bedazzled, bedazzled. Well, in theory, I was going to write the novelisation before Warner's pulled on that one as well. Who wrote the novelisation in the end? Some guy who was there there on tap, person who wrote. So he don't. I don't think he actually ever saw this film. He had a shooting continuity script was all he was given because I can see from when I've read the book that he. He, had, he, didn't know, he, he didn't have any details or whatever, so uh, um, I was pulled on doing it. Never mind, because I did I did the honeymoon killers instead. Okay, so, that's another kind of took Beautiful. me into another world. Okay, that's, that's uh, another that was whole another world. Uh, that kind of there, had yeah. its own thing going for it, and it's led me into other paths and whatever. I tell you what, we're we're actually coming up. We've almost talked for an hour. So, um, there's something specific you wanted to say. I was going to ask you the same question. Is there something specific you want to say? There you go. It's you see, we've talked for an hour very easily about yeah. things, but and have still only scratched the surface. Well, we scratched the surface in the same way as the shot that was removed from the film, which was the razor blade going across the shoe, which is a direct reference to Bunuel's and Sean Andalou. Yes. And it was taken out because this film is not a Bunuelian film and I'm glad it was taken out but it was taken out at the very last moment <coughs> but where it relates is at the very beginning of the film we see the airplane go across a breakneck uh, very loud yep. and every time you see the film the volume is never loud the volume is supposed to be very loud in this film so that when the airplane goes across you are deafened and then two other points where you get deafened is when Jagger has got the is poking the shrill noise into the ear of James Fox and when you have the computer noise in when they're smashing up the office they are supposed to be extremely loud then the sound is set at different levels in the film but if you use that as the marker so it's so loud at the beginning which is the shock 
like the shock of the cut of the knife of the razor blade in Buñuel's film, if you were to use that as your adjusting point, then the film takes on the different levels as you play. But people don't do that. Instead of which, you go to a cinema nowadays, when you see any kind of crap Hollywood film, they have it at an enormous volume yeah. to kind of cover up for the fact that it's a very poor film in the first place. Exactly. And the level never seems to vary. And that's why I can't go and see these films. No, I, I because it's just, kind of, it's just kind of deafening for, um, for no, for no, reason for no obvious all. reason, for no real reason. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is supposed to be a reason for it. The, our, the, this film works on all the senses. Smell is there from the moment uh, James Fox walks up to the lawyer sniffs him yeah. then you know that this yeah. film has got smell in it as well exactly and you don't have to you don't have to have your neighbour you know you know there's going to be obviously you see insects you know that you're going to that's going to be a uh, one that is going to reek of that kind of thing but the smell at other points the smell of acid you can smell the acid you know that's there you smell these things all the senses are played with and they're played with blatantly and subtly mm. and that is what is good about the film that's another thing that this film has that other films don't have. Very, but yeah, really, really good point. So we could and continue. I say you're in, more in, in the fact, book. I'm going to suggest. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to suggest we do sort of continue this conversation and, and stretch it out and detour even further. But so, tell me quickly about the book. The book is, is now published. Who's published it? It came out from Omnibus, who do music books, which of course, but the editor there comes. From from another publisher and wants to do some film books so hopefully we're going to expand a bit out he can expand a bit out but uh, obviously by using Jagger and you have to realise that this film never have happened if it hadn't have been for Jagger and if it hadn't have been for the wonderful establishment who when they raided Redlands and yeah. tried to kind of put the stones in their place or to put Jagger and Keith Richards in their place yeah. ended up making such a kind of fiasco of the thing of that it gave it gave the Hollywood the idea that they could finance this film and they were going to get something else they thought but in fact they started the ball rolling mm. so a film which kind of came about as a, like a glorified home movie in one sense financed by Hollywood financed really by a few policemen kind of blowing it and I think that's fantastic. This which, is a kind of one of the big jokes of the whole thing. Which was actually a tip-off from the news of the world as well, wasn't and it? Which, yeah. <laughs> Once again, the news of the world yeah. are going to kind of put in their foot in it then, as they are at the moment now. Yeah. Who knows what the repercussions now, but, you know, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. So this good. is one of the kind of the subtle things yeah. that happens about... Um, uh, the, uh, the 60s and the underground and what happened and the way it's all kind of... Mm. So I always like to kind of think of that type of thing as, um, as someone who's come from the 60s that I have a good smile as well occasionally and you have to kind of laugh at the whole way the world works. It's described recently in the press as the, the decade that won't go away. And that oh, would be sure. interesting. That would be very interesting to talk about again. But as I say, we're coming right up against time now. Okay. So at this stage, I'll say thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you. And for thank you me. for writing the book, which I've really, really enjoyed, well, and I recommend it to, to everyone listening. And Paul Buck, thank you very much. Thank you. We will continue. I've been listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Simon Tishka, special guest Paul Buck. Details of today's show 
previous shows and future episodes of I Stop It can be found on the website www.theculture.net Stay tuned to Resonance FM and hopefully see you here same place, same time same channel moved out people like myself who were writers poets <laughs> we couldn't afford to you ask michael horovitz who lived <laughs> in this in you know in that area for a long long while for the he then went out so we moved out because it was turning nasty yes and but the film had seen that the film had picked up on that yeah. way in advance uh, and could see that the violence underneath it wasn't peace and love at all no. and in notting hill it was uh, not too many years before you'd had the race riots that went on. Mm. So Notting Hill Gate was a very violent place in many respects. But, it, but even in the so-called hippie community, yeah. it was extremely violent and the undercurrent was there. Well, with the drugs and money and drugs, it always, that's, that's, that's what happened. Well, well, see, I don't really even want to kind of equate it out into the, you know, Michael X and the, all, all the rest of it that's around there. I just, even within the hippie thing, it was just, it was like a bad karma. Yeah. Bad come and you knew you weren't going to stay around long. Mm. So we all were. In fact, the funny thing is that I was living in Stanley Gardens and I hadn't been around that way for ages. And I walked back there not so long ago and I realised that right next door to where it is the Portobello Hotel now. So that whole thing has become something else. That whole area has become yeah. something, yeah. a very wealthy area. And I was living exact next door so mm. if I banged on my wall if I drilled through my wall now I would have gone into a Portobello hotel mm. <laughs> I find it very funny I remember at the at the other end uh, the Goldborn Road end that was all bomb sites then and in another big 60s film uh, was it Peter Cotton Dudley Rose? Moore the Peter Cotton Dudley Moore one oh the wrong the one with the devil he's, Peter Cotton plays the devil I don't know. We know, oh, it's, it, you, you know it somewhere, it's, it's really not, bad. I probably know, but it's not like okay. the wrong box or something no, like no, that. No, 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 not the wrong box, but in that the devil's office is actually where Meanwhile Gardens is now, so near yeah, the right. Tower in that area there, which was all bomb sites. I remember going there for my photographing with my brother in sort of 68 and 67. Right, it was really out. frightening. I was out at the end of the 60s, and uh, obviously when, so when, when I was coming to, to in theory, write the book... Bedazzled, bedazzled. Bedazzled, yeah. Well, in theory, I was going to write the novelisation before Warner's pulled on that one as well. Who wrote the novelisation in the end? Some guy who was there, there on tap, person okay. who wrote yeah. so it. Don't, I don't think he actually ever saw this film. Mm. He had a, a shooting continuity script, was all he was given, because I can see from when I've read the book that he, he, had, he, didn't, know, he, he didn't have any details on whatever. So uh, um, I was pulled on doing it. Never mind. Because I did, I did the honeymoon killers instead. And okay, so, that's another kind of took you me into another world. Okay, that's, that's another and that was whole another world that, uh, that kind of there, had yeah. its own thing for going for it, and it's led me into other paths and whatever. I tell you what, we're, we're actually coming up. We've almost talked for an hour. So, um, is there something specific you wanted to say? I was going to ask you the same question. Is there something specific you want to say? There you go. It's, you see, we've talked for an hour very easily about yeah. things, but. And they still only scratched the surface. Well, it, we scratched the surface in the same way as the shot that was removed from the film, which was the razor blade going across the shoe, which is a direct reference to Boone Wells and Sean Andalou. Yes. And it was 
taken out because this film is not a Boonerellium film and I'm glad it was taken out but it was taken out at the very last moment <coughs> but where it relates is at the very beginning of the film we see the airplane go across a breakneck uh, very loud yep. and every time you see the film the volume is never loud the volume is supposed to be very loud in this film so that when the airplane goes across you are deafened and then the two other points where you get deafened is when Jagger has got the is poking the shrill noise into the ear of James Fox and when you have the computer noise in when they're smashing up the office they are supposed to be extremely loud then the sound is set at different levels in the film but if you use that as the marker so it's so loud at the beginning right. which is the shock like the shock of the cut of the knife of the razor blade in Bunuel's film. If you were to use that as your adjusting point, then the film takes on the different levels as you play. But people don't do that. Instead of which, you go to a cinema nowadays, when you see any kind of crap Hollywood film, they have it at an enormous volume yeah. to kind of cover up for the fact that it's a very poor film in the first place. Exactly. And the level never seems to vary. And that's why I can't go and see these films. No, I, I, because it's just, kind of, it's just kind of deafening for, for no, for no, reason for no obvious all. reason, for no real reason. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is supposed to be a reason for it. The, our, the, this film works on all the senses. Smell is there from the moment uh, James Fox walks up to the lawyer and sniffs him. Yeah. Then you know that this yeah. film has got smell in it as well. Exactly, I can and you smell don't your have class. to. You don't have to have your, your neighbour. You know, you know there's going to be obviously you see incense. You know that you're going to. That's going to be a uh, one that is going to reek of that kind of thing. But the smell, at other points, the smell of acid. You can smell the acid. You know that's there. You smell these things. All the senses are played with, and they're played with blatantly and subtly. Mm. And that is what is good about the film. That's another thing that this film has that other films don't have. Very, but yeah, really, really good point. So we could and continue. I say you in, in, in fact, I'm going to suggest. I'm, I'm going to suggest we do sort of continue this conversation and, and stretch it out and detour even further. But so, tell me quickly about the book. The book is, is now published. Who's published it? It came out from Omnibus, who do music books, which of course, but the editor there comes from another publisher and wants to do some film books so hopefully we're going to expand a bit out he can expand a bit out but uh, obviously we, by using Jagger and you have to realise that this film never have happened if it hadn't have been for Jagger and if it hadn't have been for the wonderful establishment who when they raided Redlands and yeah. tried to kind of put the stones in their place or to put Jagger and Keith Richards in their place yeah. ended up making such a kind of fiasco of the thing of that it gave it gave the Hollywood the idea that they could finance this film and they were going to get something else they thought but in fact they started the ball rolling mm. so a film which kind of came about as a, like a glorified home movie in one sense financed by Hollywood financed really by a few policemen kind of blowing it and I think that's fantastic. This which, is a kind of one of the big jokes of the whole thing. Which was actually a tip-off from the news of the world as well, wasn't and it? Which, yeah. <laughs> Once again, the news of the world yeah. are going to kind of put in their foot in it then, as they are at the moment now. Yeah. Who knows what the repercussions now, but, you know, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. So this good. is one of the kind of the subtle things yeah. that happens about... Um, uh, the, uh, the 60s and the underground and what happened and the way it's all kind of... Mm. So I always like to kind of think of that type of thing as um, 
someone who's come from the 60s that I have a good smile as well occasionally. You have to kind of laugh at the whole way the world works. It's described recently in the press almost the, the decade that won't go away. And that oh, would be sure. interesting. That would be very interesting to talk about again. But as I say, we're coming right up against time now. Okay. So at this stage, I'll say thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you. And for thank you for me. writing the book, which I've really, really enjoyed. Well, and I recommend it to, to everyone listening. And Paul Buck, thank you very much. Thank you. We will continue. been listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me Simon Tishka, special guest Paul Buck. Details of today's show, previous shows and future episodes of Isotopica can be found on the website www.theculture.net. Stay tuned to Resonance FM and hopefully see you here, same place, same time, same channel.